Again, it's good to see you this morning. I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Luke's Gospel and uh, the first chapter. As we continue our series through the narratives, the birth narratives that Luke records, we come now to the birth, not of Jesus, but to the birth of John the Baptist. And so I'd like to ask you if you join with me in prayer, and then I'll just read the text, and we'll go right into the message. How's that? Our Father in heaven, we love you, and thank you so much for sending your Son. There's so much mystery about this, because there's so much mystery about you to us. And Lord, it's just amazing that even as you have revealed so much of yourself and your truth to us, it is still true. It is still the case that eye is not seen, nor is ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that you have prepared for those who love you. Lord, help us love you this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We're reading from uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 57. This is what we read. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no. He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, may serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all of our days. And you, child, you'll be called this prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the dark and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Well, it completes the reading of God's word. I'm going to ask you a question this morning. We know 
not exactly how old Elizabeth was, but we know she was advanced in years. So here's my simple question. If you were, say, 75 years old and just learned that you were pregnant, what would you do? This last week, I think I found the perfect mother-to-be T-shirt for Elizabeth. Across the front of the T-shirt is Star Wars script, you know. Looks like it's rotating up the screen. And it says, the force is strong with this one. You think Elizabeth might have worn that? I think she probably did. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that this humble and modest woman, this godly woman, hid herself when she became pregnant. She didn't want to draw any attention to herself whatsoever. Luke 124 says that after she conceived for five months, she kept herself hidden. And then that only changed in the sixth month when Mary visited her. And I really don't think there's any reason to believe Elizabeth ever showed herself pregnant to anyone else except her husband. All was concealed until the baby was born. And so I think that helps explain why in verse 58, when John was born, we're told her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. They, they heard about it. Finally, they heard about it. But before that, other than rumors and so forth, I'm sure things got out that way, but before that, I don't think they really had much of a clue. What they knew was that Zachariah had been unable to speak and possibly unable to hear as well. But neither he nor his wife, Elizabeth, had told anybody else. They hadn't told them about the angel's message months earlier in the temple that Elizabeth would bear a son and that his name would be John. And because they didn't know, you can understand why. When the baby was born and when he was brought to his uh, circumcision party, woohoo! They assumed that he would be called Zachariah, that he would be named after his father. I mean, it was normal to do this. It was standard practice to name a child after some honored member of the family. And in this case, the neighbors were all quite amped up and prepared to call this baby Zachariah. I mean, why not name him after his father, this this old man still vigorous and able to conceive a child well done Zachariah give him his bragging rights but Elizabeth cut them off the text says she said no is very strong and emphatic in the Greek no stop it he shall be called John and they protested none of your relatives is called by this name I suspect perhaps they thought she was doing some disservice to Zechariah, because then they appealed to Zechariah using hand signals. What do you mean? What do you want him to be called? And he asked for this writing tablet. And then with, with a, some sort of stylus, he scratched on the waxy surface of that tablet. His name is John. And it was such a shock. It was so completely unconventional. And you know, that was exactly... The point. It was God's point in giving him, in giving him a non-family name. John, rather, was naturally conceived. He was certainly naturally born. But the power that he would have in the identity that he would possess was from outside the natural order. 
this man and his life would not be able to be explained simply by saying he was the child of his parents. He was different. And suddenly, and miraculously as we read, Zechariah could speak again. And he broke out and began to praise God. And it wasn't only what he said, but just the fact he could say it after being silenced for nine long months that the neighbors were all left in awe. And where he'd been afflicted with silence because of his disbelief, he now rejoiced with faith. And I want to say, you know, there was no embarrassment here. There was no shame whatsoever. It just suddenly happened to him. He felt none of that. He just felt joy. I think it bears saying very honestly to you this morning that uh, you also, you and me, we're never too old to change. We're never too wrong to get it right. We're never so chastened by God that he will not bless us. We're never too long in unbelief not to come to faith. There's absolutely no shame in admitting and turning and confessing what is true, no matter how long we have denied it, no matter how long we've been chastened under God's hand, no matter what we've had to go through, there's no shame in it. There's no embarrassment in it. There is power in this. This is how and when God fills people with his Holy Spirit. It's good. It's wonderful. Well, verse 65 says that neighbors began talking and, and word spread and the common folk began pondering the meaning of these things and they asked the question, what then will this child be? What will this child be? They knew God's hand was on him. But now stop for a moment with me and I want you to notice something that Luke did. It's at just this point in verse 65, right after that, that he writes down, or he included, Zechariah's words of praise and prophecy. He includes it right after the question is asked. Though chronologically, he misplaced it. Because Zechariah's praise and prophecy occurred before. His praise and prophecy occurred in verse 64, we're told. Then in 65, the question is posed. But then in question 66, what Luke does is he puts the praise and the prophecy down there. Because Zechariah's earlier praise and prophecy answer that question. What will this child be? And I'd like to point out something else that's important here. The prophecy that Zechariah utters is 12 verses long. From verse 68 through verse 79. But it is only... In the last four verses of that prophecy that he speaks about his son. So what does he talk about in the first eight verses of the prophecy? Of the, prophecy? the answer is he talks about Christ. He doesn't talk about John, he talks about Jesus. Who hasn't even been born yet. Because John's birth is uh, it's not about John, it's really about Christ. When Zechariah looks in John, when he, when he thinks about John, he exalts Christ. 
his love for his son. John is expressed first and foremost in his love for Christ. And we know this is anticipatory. John was the forerunner of Jesus. The Savior was near. Uh, he speaks in terms, Zechariah does, of Isaiah 40. He, he, the Son will prepare the way. But I think it's very significant for us to know this. This is important. And I want to just say this morning, you don't have to be Zechariah to love your own children this way or to love your spouse this way or your family this way or your friends this way. When your heart, honestly, is so shaped by God's Spirit that, I'll put it this way, that they mean less than Christ to you. That you love Christ more. And they know you love Christ more. When that's the case, you are actually able to love them well. And to love them best. And to love them truthfully. You raise your children that way. You love Christ more, and they know that. What you're conferring on them also, as Zechariah was conferring on John, you confer on them. You confer on your husband. or your, You confer on them their true identity. It wasn't just true of John. It's true of you. It's true of me. I think it's true of every human being in the world. Of all of us, it may be said, we must decrease, and Christ must increase and though we're not called to be prophets as christians we are called to be jesus witnesses and it's a point of very high privilege and very high honor to live this way and to know ourselves with this identity and it's an identity we confer on one another in the way we relate and live together when we love Christ most. Well, in Zachariah's song, as with Mary's song, we have more here than poetry praising God. We have one of the finest summaries of Old Testament theology in the entire Bible. As a matter of fact, when I was uh, web surfing and looking for sermons on this passage, I don't quote other, or I don't preach other people's sermons, but I do look at how the people dealt a text, dealt with the text. It, it, was, it was striking to me. I couldn't find any sermon on this passage that actually preached Zechariah's prophecy line by line by line because it is so dense. You can't get through it all in one sermon. Honestly, you really can't. It's an amazing, concise summary of the theology of the entire Old Testament. Zechariah sings about how all Old Testament theology points to Christ, beginning with God's promises in the covenants and extending to the hope of the prophets. And it's so consistent. He goes through the covenant with, with Abraham in verse 73 and the covenant with Israel in verse 68 and the, the covenant with David in verse 69. And then that, that, that same that same. Uh, significance of pointing to Christ then is extended and portrayed so many times again and again and again in the hope of the prophets during Israel's period of ruination and destruction and idolatry. Those prophets 
directed their words of hope. You read those latter prophets like Amos and, uh, and like Isaiah and like Jeremiah. You know they, they directed their words of hope to what they called the remnant of Israel, the believing remnant of Israel. Isaiah said, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from your womb, even to your old age, I am he. To your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and I will save. And you know, old gray-haired Zachariah, that moment, like Elizabeth, like uh, Simeon and Anna, whom we're going to meet next Sunday, he saw himself <coughs> as that remnant, in that remnant of believers to whom the prophets had directed such wonderful messianic hope. And he recognized that he was right on the edge of the fulfillment of that hope in the coming of Christ. We know this song of Zechariah. We call it the Benedictus from the first word in the song, blessed, that's the Latin word for that. And by this song, what Zechariah does is he turns the people's, you know, they ask this question, what will happen with him? What will happen with John? And he turns their speculation into expectation. And he does this by redirecting them to the hope that they'd grown up with, that they'd been taught, that they perhaps had taught their children, that came from their own scriptures, he redirects them. And I suggest when we look at this prophecy and praise by Zechariah, this answer to their question, we can use redirection ourselves, honestly. We can use redirection. We can use fresh kindling of our hope. We, too, can have that hope returned or rekindled to us that, uh, that helps us turn from the disbelief that shuts our mouths as Christ witnessed. We can, be, we can use that rekindling. I want you to think about Zechariah's prophecy to us in that way. I know he speaks to us from the other side, from the, from the before side of Jesus' birth, and I realize that we listen here from the other side, which is the after side of Jesus' resurrection and the after side of his crucifixion. And yet that message from Zechariah really does resound easily across that gap in time and that gap in all that God has begun to do and continue to do and is accomplishing. It resounds to us, honestly. And I want to draw yourself, your attention to this in two respects. We think about hope. The hope presented here, it is surely our hope. And we have much better grounds to believe it in terms of fulfillment than Zechariah had. But I want you to look with me at verses 68 and 69. This is the beginning of Zechariah's prophecy. He says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. We're focusing on that verse. I want to point out that when he speaks of God visiting and redeeming his people, and then when he speaks of God raising up a horn of salvation for us out of the house of David, he's not writing about two different things. He's writing about one and the same thing. 
And when he talks about it, is it's translated in the past tense? Although it hadn't happened yet, at least Jesus hadn't been even born yet, as a prophet, as prophesying, he spoke of it. It was so certain that he wrote of it or spoke of it and sang it as if it had already happened, which was very common among the prophets. So the first thing that he says is that he, God, has visited now, I want you to think with me for a moment about that word, visit. You notice how it begins with vis, V-I-S? Just like the word visual begins with V-I-S. It has to do with seeing. And in fact, the underlying Greek word that visit translates has within itself, the Greek word has within itself the, uh, the root scope from which we get our word microscope or from which we get our word telescope. It also refers to seeing. In fact, that New Testament word, that underlying word, is intensified with a prefix, epi. So it is actually, in the noun form, episkopos. Have you ever heard episcopal? Episkopos? That's actually where it comes from, is the Greek. So to visit someone doesn't mean simply to drop by. You know, to visit someone is very intentional. It means to go see someone. It means to go look after someone, to look after them, to oversee them because they need help. That's what it is to visit someone. Knowing someone's condition well enough, observing them carefully enough in order to help them. And so that's how we used to use this word. We talked about a doctor paying a visit. It's not a chat. It's not a drop by for coffee. It's to look into and look at someone in order to look after them and in order to care for them. Sometimes, in fact, you know, I've gotten calls from you. You've said to me, Pastor, Kurt, I could use a visit. It doesn't mean I want to play a game of rummy because I'm lonely. That means I want you to come look after me. I want you to help me. I need some help with something. That's the word way visit was used. And this passage says that God has visited his people that way. In fact, the term the New Testament uses in the Greek for someone who does visit is episkopos which we translate bishop, the one who looks after, who oversees, who comes near to care for. And the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the bishop of our souls. And that's exactly what Zechariah realized he would be. And that in Jesus' coming, it was God who was visiting, who was visiting his people. What an honor. What a privilege. What an amazing and loving God. You know, as human beings, I'm not saying as Christians, I'm saying that as human beings, universally, I think that we all have this sense that none of us is spiritually complete. At least we have the sense that no one around us is spiritually complete, even if we are, right? We have the sense that no one is spiritually complete, that none of us is really whole. And we don't understand why. We don't understand exactly how to make things 
right. What we know is when we hurt, we know when something isn't working in our, our lives, and we may come up with what I'll call sort of home remedies, but the truth is these are all placebos. They don't really fix our condition. We simply don't know the truth about ourselves. So we really can't treat this condition. But we know what it feels like. We know what its effects are. Well, our creator does know. Just like a good physician. Our creator does know. He knows who we are. He knows how we got into this condition. And he has now visited us as he said he would. He has visited to redeem us. As Zechariah later put it in verse 77. This will be John's mission, pointing to Christ. He has given us the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness, by the forgiveness of their sins. The forgiveness of sins. Now, I was thinking this last week about that. You know, uh, sin is the 500-pound gorilla in every person's life. It's what they don't want to talk about. It's what they deny. But their sin and their guilt and our shame and so forth around sin, we're constantly manipulating and maneuvering around this reality. Avoiding shame, trying to run away from guilt, denying. And we know we're actively denying being defensive to ourselves, about ourselves. This is the 500-pound gorilla in our lives. We need forgiveness for our sins. That is the problem. That is the tumor we cannot see that causes so much pain in our lives, honestly, that makes things not work right in us. It is the problem. And God has visited us. He has visited us to redeem us, to heal us and deliver us from that by giving us a Savior to reconcile us to himself and to forgive us for our sins. Well, our Creator knows us. He has visited us. And if you know nothing else than that, that is such hope. But then he goes on at one and the same time. Zechariah also says this, that he has reigned, raised up a horn of salvation for us from the house of David. From the house of David. Raised up a horn of salvation. What an image that is. I mean, really. It doesn't refer to playing an instrument, although the shofar, or the ram's horn, was played as an instrument. But it doesn't refer to playing an instrument. Let me just say, I mean, if you have ever seen a, a muscled bull ox, or if you've ever seen a buck ram, you know what a horn is. And you know the horn is the sign of their vigor and their dignity and their strength and their power. Is that not right? So when people, you know, buy very expensive shotguns and pay people thousands of dollars to drive them up in an armor-plated vehicle so they can murder an animal with a horn, what do they do? I don't really like game hunting. What do they do? They cut the horns out and they put it on the wall because the horn is a sign of that creature's strength. And I got the creature. Isn't that right? That's what a horn is. And that's what a horn means. 
It's that creature's defense, that creature's weapon, that creature's strength is represented by a horn. And you know, you know that when a bull ox starts scraping and scuffing air with its hoof and begins to snort, and don't worry, I'm not going to snort up here. You know trouble's coming. Because the next thing that happens is that 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 bull ox begins to do this. He begins to do figure eights with his head. What's he doing? He's tossing his horns up. He's raising up his horns. And what's he doing when he does that? He's warning his adversary, get out of the way. I'm coming through. If you don't get out of the way, I will gore you with my horn. That's what he's saying. And when he charges, you don't want to be in his way. And the reason is because all of the power and all of the force of all 1,200 pounds of his muscle and his sinew and his bone are concentrated on the very tip of each horn. No enemy can survive the impact of that. No enemy can survive the impact. In the same way, isn't it an amazing thing? You give me a little six-ounce piece of metal? Me, you give me just six ounces of metal? And you give me a plank of oak? I can drive a nail through it. Because all of my strength, as limited as it is, or power, force, is concentrated at that single point. Everything must give way and that's exactly what Zechariah saw in Christ in Christ God is raising up for us a horn of salvation his entire power all God's mighty strength will be so focused on him so expressed in him and through him that no enemy could withstand him. Every enemy would be ruined or scattered. And it's true. In order to accomplish our salvation. Now, isn't this an amazing thing? That Zechariah, under the Spirit of God, he saw this on the before side of Jesus' birth. But at the same time, he had this hope He had this hope 400 years since the last prophets. 600 years after the house of David had been shut down. 1,400 years after Moses. 2,000 years after Abraham. He had this hope. on the before side of Jesus' birth and after all of that. And I just want to say this morning, if we reflect together on this, such an assurance we have on the after side of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. He gored his enemies. Sin, death, Satan, none could withstand it. So please, especially with what we now know in fulfillment, don't you 
but the passage of time or adversity in the midst of it mislead or dissuade you from the hope that is completely true and relevant in Christ. All that God has begun to do came to be focused on Christ and it will be completed in the horn, by the horn of salvation. All that he promised, he will fulfill through Christ. And I want to say this morning that millions upon millions, and you know this is the case, but millions upon millions know that this is true. And I know that many of you would testify in exactly the same way that hope in Christ is a sustaining wonder. It is a real cure. It is not a placebo. It is not a fake cure. It reaches our souls. It makes us whole. It is exactly what we need. What we need is the forgiveness of our sins and to be reconciled to God and to have a fellowship and living relationship with God. But who do you turn to? What do you trust? God has visited us. We trust Christ. And through that, the fellowship and relationship are real. And they grow. And we grow spiritually. I'm saying to you that this hope is not too good to be true. I'm saying it is too good to be false. It is exactly what we need. And in all the world, this is the only place that you'll learn it and that you can know it. This is the only place it exists. God has visited us. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And that is Jesus Christ. And until our hope comes to fulfillment, until our faith becomes sight when Christ returns, until then, Christ is our hope. Christ. And as Zechariah prophesied, it is true. He's the one who gives light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death. He's the one to guide our feet into the ways of peace. Peace with God. Peace within ourselves that follows. Peace with others that's cultivated. He is that way. He is our hope. He's very reliable. He is God's horn of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and your goodness to us in Christ. We see this love overflowing from uh, Zechariah toward the Savior, whom he had never even met, neither have we, not in that physical sense, of course. But And he loved Christ best, first, foremost, overwhelmingly, above all, above John, his own son, who was the, the crown 
of his old age. May it be with us. Because as part of our living the truth, and as part of our conveying true identity on our children and our loved ones and our spouses, it really is. And Lord, I, I pray that you would be speaking and working in each of our hearts and lives. We, it is, we are never too old to change. We are, we are never too wrong to get it right. We just aren't. We've never experienced your hand of chastisement too much for you to bless us. It's always time. It is always time to turn, to praise, to become a worshiper, to be filled with your spirit. There's no shame in it. We thank you that this hope we have in Christ is so sure and so firm. As the Bible says, Christ is is the hope of Christ. He is the anchor for our souls inside the temple, the Holy of Holies. He, He is the one who binds us, holds us, keeps us, guarantees us eternal life with you forever. Reliable, a horn. I ask you to strengthen us all. And where our mouths have been muted and silenced out of our disbelief or out of our simply drifting from hope, the hope, Lord, pull us back. Help us praise you and love you like Zachariah did. I do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.